his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 84 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. David is still unable to join us as he's on his worldwide tour to promote cage-free and ethical source dog food. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Catherine Roish who is a conservation technician in the Museum Conservation Department at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and affiliate faculty of sociology and anthropology at the Metro State University of Denver. Catherine, so thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing this evening? Thank you for having me. I am doing really well. Thank you. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. I met Catherine when I was an intern at DMNS and had many lunches and wonderful conversations and uh, vividly remember eating a meatball sub when she was telling me about her dissertation. And uh, we'll get into that later and why that meatball sub is relevant. But for now, <laughs> Catherine, what what first got you into anthropology um, growing up? Were you a dinosaur kid, a history kid or, or a nature nerd? I was kind of more dinosaur and space kid. I actually grew up in Denver and my parents both scientists and they took me to the museum a lot actually when I was a kid. So, you know, some of my very early fond memories are going around exploring the world. You know, if we were if we were road tripping to see family, they would we'd stop at like, oh, there's a natural park or a national park here. We're going to stop. We're going to go and have a look at things. And also they'd take us to the museum a lot. But kind of what got me into anthropology is I actually grew up across the street from a library, which is wonderful when it's summer and your mother is like, get out of the house and go to the library and get something to entertain yourself. <laughs> so at some point when I was about nine or so, I wandered from the fiction section of the kids in the kids section over to the nonfiction section and found all of the bright, shiny books on ancient Egypt. And I was like, ooh, that looks really cool. That's really new and mysterious. So pick that up and kind of immediately from that point was like, I would like to be an archaeologist. This is what I want to do with my life. And my parents, both being fairly realistic people, were like, are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> there is not a lot of money in that career. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. Um, so that's kind of what started it all off was that trip to the library when I was about nine years old and finding those books on ancient Egypt. Very cool. I also have like very fond memories of going to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science or what was it like the history something. It's gone through like a, several iterations of names. Yeah, that seems to be. Yeah, we, we go through name changes because I think the original name is like the Denver Museum and then it's Denver Museum of Natural History. And then, yeah, I think late 90s, early 2000s, they switched it up to Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Yeah, that's that's what I re- I always remembered it as, but yeah, those, those were our like, uh, elementary school trips was, you know, going, going there and things like that. It was, it, it was definitely a gateway drug for me. 
I don't yeah. know if they want that <laughs> on their uh, <laughs> on their website as a quote, but I will uh, certainly volunteer that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. we'll have to talk to marketing about that one. <laughs> of course, I remember like as a kid having a library card was like the coolest thing. It was like what you got before you got a permit or in my case, like the pool pass was the next one where you can go by yourself. But the library card, that was a big deal to get that. But yeah, that's awesome. So you are you're a Colorado native. You grew up in and around Denver. Yep. Got introduced through an Egypt book, Egyptology book at the library. So when you were deciding programs, right, for, for college after high school, why did you choose anthropology? And then additionally, spoiler alert, why the UK? But so I didn't actually choose anthropology. I chose archaeology, which in the UK, because it's a a different discipline, you can actually get just a degree in archaeology. So I was kind of looking for archaeology programs. And then, you know, so there were a couple of other ones, like there was Boston University. I applied to Pacific State University up in Oregon, um, a couple of programs here in the U.S. But I chose the U.K. because my mom's actually English. And my maternal grandparents and uh, mom and uncle settled here in Denver or in Boulder, actually, Basically, my mom was finishing high school, so she went to university here, but my grandfather was very much like hearing that I wanted to get a degree, that I wanted to do in archaeology, that kind of thing. My maternal grandfather was like, oh, well, you could go to school in the UK. And he mentioned that actually from the time I was going into high school. So from the time I was about, you know, eighth, ninth grade you know, 12, 13, thereabouts. And so it was kind of a goal the entire time I was going through high school, actually to get myself over to the UK and kind of get the qualifications I needed to go to the UK. So that was kind of how and why I wound up in the UK was partly, uh, mostly actually due to my maternal grandfather, kind of like pushing the UK as a place to be for university. Very cool. And you ultimately ended up at Durham University. How would you describe that, that program to, to a person who has no idea about <laughs> UK archaeology programs. It's really good. It's So it's really focused. So the department at Durham has a really good kind of spread of staff. They've got, um, they do have an Egyptologist, but they've also got staff who are focused kind of across the broad range of archaeology. So, I mean, obviously they're focused in certain areas like medieval history, that kind of thing, as you would expect for a, a UK university, um, a university in Europe, kind of focusing on medieval European history and archaeology, but also um, a lot of prehistorians kind of spread across the globe. And, you know, a lot of people who are focused on kind of things like plant archaeology, bioarchaeology, all those kinds of different topics. And they actually also have a conservation section within there as well. And the thing I really appreciate about the Durham program is that they really focus on even though they're even though Durham is kind of a slightly more posh university, they focus on the realist the realistic sides of being in archaeology. They're like, you know, most of you are probably not going to have an academic career. Most of you are going to have a career doing CRM, cultural resource management, or in, in the UK, it's called professional archaeology. And so archaeology, where you're going to be digging insights before, you know, contractors come in to build buildings. And they're very realistic about that kind of from the end of your first introductory lecture. They're like, OK, let's be realistic. Most of you are going to be doing this kind of thing and let's train you towards that. So they have a very heavy practical component to the course. So the way university is set up in the UK is it's a three year undergraduate 
and you don't do any of the kind of liberal arts kind of education like we get here in the U.S., where it's, you know, you're taking the math, English, languages, history, and sciences. It's literally you go in for your degree program and that's what you're doing. So if you're doing an archaeology degree, you take only archaeology courses. And the other big difference at least at Durham, is that you don't have semesters in the same way that we have here. So, you know, you take half a year, like, you know, August through December, and you're studying one thing, and then you got another thing from December through June. In the UK, it's you study the same thing throughout an entire course year. So you start in October, and you have your exams and all of that in June. So it's kind of very focused which is really helpful if you know that's exactly what you want. Obviously, if you're a little uncertain what you want to do um, in terms of a career, it's a little bit less helpful. But it's really it, it's really good in that you're really focused on specifically to the degree course you're going to be doing. And then that helps you focus on kind of a an area of interest if you're interested in pursuing graduate studies. So you can kind of you, you've got the it's essentially like the last two years of university here in the U.S., really focused and kind of helping you to kind of step into graduate studies if that's what you want to do, which is really nice, actually. I, I really appreciated that. And a lot of practical professional training. So when you walk out of an undergraduate degree at Durham, you would be able to go and apply to a cultural resources management company or that kind of thing and actually be a viable candidate for a job. That would have been great for my GPA because those general classes kicked my butt. And I, I think... It's really interesting to hear that they're so focused and, and, and exciting to hear that, they, that it's practical. Because I, I think we spend a lot of time, at least in um, undergrads, so talking about the theoretical or you know, culture history kind of stuff. But we really miss out on a cultural resources management class. You know, I didn't get that until I was in graduate school. Although my professor, my field school professor, did kind of mention and, and give us the idea about that stuff. But that's, that's really cool. It's very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely a good way of training students. Yeah. Because that's every year you have a practical component where it's three hours on a Monday morning and you're uh, the initial thing is where they introduce you to all of the aspects that you need to understand generally for archaeology. So things like taphonomy and how do you write a contact sheet, that kind of thing. If you've got to actually, you know, do all the paperwork for a site, what is all that paperwork and how do you run through and do it? And then as you kind of get up into your second and third years, they focus you down a little more until your third year, you're actually focused on some professional aspect of archaeology, whether that's archaeological illustration, zooarchaeological, you know, being able to identify zooarchaeological fauna doing uh, conservation. That's actually what I did for my third year practical was conservation. And so that was basically a year kind of looking at understanding really the theory behind conservation. And then there was a practical aspect we were, where we were actually conserving items that had been excavated by the um, department's archaeological unit, the professional archaeological unit. So yeah, it's, it's a really good, really hands-on way of getting that good training so that, yeah, basically a student can walk out and get a job in CRM. That's awesome to hear that they train you in undergrad to become a professional. Because I think here in the United States, like my experience was, here's a bunch of coursework. Technically, the only thing you need to work CRM in our country is you have to do a field school, not necessarily an anthropology degree. But hearing in the UK, you were trained like right from the get go, like they were very real and blunt with you about this is the reality. We should train you for the reality, which I think is is an ongoing issue here in the States of 
what are we actually training anthropology and specifically archaeology subfield students for an undergraduate if the only thing they need to become CRM archaeologist is a field school? So that's awesome. So why did you end up deciding to stay at Durham for a master's? Um, it was kind of a few different factors. I, I applied to actually to two different master's at Durham. I applied for just kind of the general archaeology master's, and then I applied for the paleopathology master's. And I stayed, I wound up getting the paleopathology master's and I stayed, I decided to stay for that because Durham has Charlotte Roberts, who is like one of the top paleopathologists out there, but also has Rebecca Galland, who's another top paleopathologist. And the program is really well established. It's really well done. And they had just kind of like gotten a new lab set up. So it was really nicely, like everything was kind of prime for like, this is a really good program to be part of because some of the other paleopathology like there's one at uh, Sheffield there was one at um, University College London that kind of thing but it was kind of really I was comfortable with the faculty I was comfortable with the university and the, the faculty involved in the program was really really good so I was like you know what you can't go wrong and you kind of already as having been there as an undergraduate you kind of already have an in with the faculty which makes you again, more memorable when they're looking at applications. So it was kind of one of those things where it's like all the factors kind of make it better to stay here. So I think at least in some programs in the U.S., they kind of encourage you to go somewhere else for your master's or doctorate. Is that the same kind of outlook they have in the U.K. in general? It depends. <laughs> it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, some some faculty I talked to were definitely like, yeah, you should go somewhere else for graduate school. Some of them were like, you know, staying here for the master's is okay. That's logical. Go for somewhere else for the PhD. Some staff members were like, it's fine for you to stay at the same location for all three degrees. For me, it was kind of more a practical aspect in that given the topic I was studying, I was emailing people and, you know, a lot of people don't recognize Durham University outside of the UK, which is kind of a shame because it's a really good university, but people don't necessarily recognize the name. They're like, oh, are you talking about University of North Carolina in Durham, North Carolina, that kind of thing. And it's like, no, 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 this is Durham University in the UK. So, you know, given the difficult topic I had, trying to get people to email me back was a little difficult. And so I was kind of part of what I what I did when I made the switch down to Oxford was getting that kind of name because, you know, you, you email somebody with the University of Oxford email address and they're like, yes, I would really like to get back to you and, and talk to you. So there was a little bit of a mercenary sort of um, ideation basically behind switching down to Oxford, at least partly. Excellent. And as you've already alluded to, so you ended up pursuing a PhD at Oxford, you know, I'm pretty sure many of our fans have heard of it. It's kind of, you know, one of those universities has kind of a reputation, kind of a small Yes, yeah, small reputation, kind of a kind of a big deal to go to Oxford as a PhD student. So, other than getting that name recognition, what else drove you to to apply to Oxford for your PhD? Um, so, partly I wanted to, as part of the PhD, do some stable isotope work. And the School of Archaeology at Oxford has got it's kind of split into there's the institute which does kind of more cultural and theoretical work. And then there's the research laboratory for, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's research laboratory for archaeology and the history of art. And they do all kinds of different 
uh, basically archaeological science work. So they do radiocarbon dating. They do stable isotope work. They do um, thermoluminescence dating and all those kinds of things. And so it was going to be actually really helpful to have, which are, which are things that Durham didn't do. To be able to have a lab that did that, get that training, that was also really valuable to me. So that ability to actually go and get some of those techniques that I just couldn't get at Durham was another thing that kind of really drew me to to Oxford. And I mean, you know, again, at the end of the day, as you say, it's Oxford. Who's going to say no to Oxford? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, On that note, I think we'll end this segment. I think the next segment might be a little different. touchy and <laughs> painful for, 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 for folks. So just a, just a heads up. This is episode 84. You're about to be soothed by Chris Webster's beautiful voice. Welcome back to episode 84 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are with chatting here with Dr. Catherine Royce. And I just want to give a heads up to our audience that the topic of this this segment is going to be a little sensitive and I don't think it'll be explicitly graphic, but there'll be some things that we talk about that might raise some eyebrows, make you wince, things like that. So just just as a heads up, I'm just going to, you know, maybe not, this is not the episode to listen to with your kids or, you know, folks that might be queasy. So on that note, Dr. Roish, what did you write your PhD on at the University of Oxford? So my thesis topic was castration. And so I was looking at the archaeology of castration and I kind of stumbled onto it. Stumbled is not the right word, but I kind of worked my way to this topic while I was working on my master's. And it was kind of, you know, that sort of thing that you do when you're working on a a graduate degree. You're like, oh, what am I going to write my thesis on? What can I do it on? And I had about six or seven different topics that I'd kind of gone to my supervisor and been like, what do you think about this? And she was like, ah, I don't know if, you know, there's enough there for a master's thesis, that kind of thing. And so I finally was kind of thinking over Christmas break that year. And I remembered I had read an Anne Rice novel, probably when I was far too young. This is the problem of having unrestricted access to a library. Because <laughs> um, my parents didn't didn't check any of the books. They were just like, okay, you brought books home from the library. Cool. So I read an Anne Rice novel called Cry to Heaven. And it's all about castrati, who are the castrated singers for the Catholic Church during the late medieval into the early modern period. And I remember basically reading there, the main character had had a thing where as they hit puberty, their limbs started growing unusually long and just all these different sorts of changes. And I was like, well, those have to be skeletal changes. So... I kind of I got back after Christmas, went to my undergraduate supervisor and was like, how about castration? And she's like, well, look into it, see what's there. And it kind of billowed from uh, a master's thesis into a Ph.D. (laughs) And it's again, it's something that I could probably if I had access to skeletons, could it could be a full on lifetime career sort of thing, because there's just so much information about it that we just really don't have enough info on that we could really dig into using both anthropology and archaeology. Yeah, so Catherine told me this, uh, Dr. Roish. So I was eating a meatball sub for lunch one day, and I was just like, what was your dissertation on? And she's like, this is what I did. And I was like, fascinating. Please tell me more. But yeah, I mean, your your publications, and we talked about this in the green room. I'm absolutely, I love these. You have hey, raised one second voices. Before, one oh, second yeah. before that, just, just, just to be clear, we aren't talking about the castration of animals. Right. It's we are a little a little bit of both. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, I just want to put that in before humans. we go in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, animals Excellent. and humans. Yeah. Okay. So we got raised voices, the archaeology of castration, reading between the lines, the disparate data in castration studies, defining the other, castration, social difference in archaeology, and dependent deviance, castration and deviant burial. Like just absolutely financial, like just phenomenal names for articles. So concerning your PhD dissertation, what was your thesis statement? Like what were you trying to to prove what was your research question and what were your results? So the research question was kind of basically we have these kind of historical accounts written by non-castrated males about here's what all these changes are. And most of them are about the soft tissue. But we do know that castration before puberty in males, mammals of all kinds, not just humans, but in male mammals causes certain skeletal changes, including things like the long bones get longer, that kind of thing. So we had this kind of vague idea, but there's no set information about like, here are the things you should be looking for if you're digging in an area where you think there might be castrates. And so that kind of my, my first thesis question was, what actually are the changes to the skeleton? in mammals, especially humans, when you castrate before puberty. And then kind of the next question was, can we actually establish, you know, some way of detecting this? Because when I was looking into it, you know, we've got records from China, various different dynasties in China, you know, the Ming dynasty in China from, you know, 1300 to 1400 to 1600 in um, China, they're saying, you know, there are 100,000 eunuchs serving the emperor and kind of the upper, his his sons, the princes and uh, the nobility in China. Voltaire, I mean, it's Candide, so it's satire, but he's saying 4,000 boys a year being castrated in Naples during the, the height of the castrati in the early modern period, you know, the 1700s, 1800s. And so I'm like, you know, if we're taking these numbers, even if we take them with a grain of salt, that is thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people that we just don't have any record of archaeologically. And that just like that just strikes me as, okay. it's not that they're I mean, even if we have even smaller numbers than are listed in some of these tomes, some of these texts, there should still be enough like there there are enough records uh, and legitimate records from the palaces and that kind of thing where we should be finding these people archaeologically and we're just not. So my kind of basic premise was we don't understand what we're looking for. We don't understand what when we see a castrate skeleton, we don't unless it's specifically kind of like on a headstone saying this was a castrate. We don't understand that that's what we're seeing. And so kind of my thesis was what are actually are the changes and how can we set ourselves up so that if we are digging in an area where we know we might encounter castrate skeletons, we can actually recognize them and kind of maybe do a little bit more study there and see what stories their remains have to tell. So two questions for you. How ubiquitous was this practice uh, across the globe and in different cultures, like time and place? And second, what's the purpose of this practice? Okay. So it kind of depends when and where you are. As far as we can tell, the earliest kind of records we have of human castrates are in some hymns to the goddess Inanna from Ur and Uruk in Mesopotamia. And that's about 4000 BC. Those, those are, that's the written forms of them. Those hymns are probably a good 2000 years older than that. So 6000 BC, potentially. 
There is some suggestion that human castration is linked to animal castration and animal castration is a practice for herding and uh, kind of maintaining your your, uh, domestic animals the way the kind of the breeding programs you've set up. There's some suggestions that that comes in with the secondary products revolution 10 to 12,000 years ago. So potentially human castration and castration as a practice in general has been around for 10 to 12,000 years. As far as I can tell, kind of at its widest extent, it spread from China in the east. And there are some suggestions that there were castrates in Japan at certain points. So all the way from like, you know, the east, uh, easternmost coast of Afro-Eurasia, all the way through into kind of uh, Africa and around the Mediterranean coast in Europe. So it's kind of a, a pan-Afro-Eurasian thing over time. Again, kind of more popular in some areas than others. It seems to be more closely related with very hierarchical kind of um, structures, either religion, so castrated priests for especially goddesses, or very hierarchical kind of political structures, so empires, that kind of thing, where the emperor, the the head of state, is kind of seen as a semi-divine figure. Castrates seem to be kind of go hand in hand with that kind of practice. And it's this idea that castrates kind of act they kind of get put into this place where they're they're seen as not physically male and not physically female they kind of inhabit a third gender or in some cases a third sex and that's kind of seen as being a very powerful sort of state to be in and so you know they're kind of given these specialized roles where they can be around a semi-divine figure who might harm normal people around them and who might be harmed by normal people around them and so therefore castrates kind of quite frequently especially in imperial contexts act as a kind of mediator between the imperial ruler and everyone else around him and so they'll kind of act as um, you know full-on servants sometimes they'll act in kind of more clerical roles those kinds of things it really kind of depends where you are and when you are but the kind of overall it seems to be they're acting as kind of a sort of living barrier between either a divine or a semi-divine figure and the rest of the population that's absolutely fa- fascinating so i think in general when we think or at least when i think of castration i think of it as like a emasculating or like a, a lessening of, of punishment yeah 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 exactly yeah i think of something that like is negative a negative effect on a human body but it seems like these folks actually occupy like a very kind of important role in these societies yeah and that's kind of one of these interesting things because when like in for example in china when the qing dynasty came in the the ming dynasty which was kind of the last Han Chinese dynasty of China um, and ended in 1644 when the Qing, who were Manchurian, um, basically invaded and took over the country. There is a lot of kind of basically the way it's it's taught in Chinese history is that essentially a, the, the emperors grew too weak. The eunuchs took too much power. So the castrates had too much power. And that basically caused the downfall of the dynasty. So when the Qing came in and established their dynasty, there was a very solid rule. The kind of the, the first ruler of that dynasty was like, we're not going to have eunuchs. And it kind of came down to they had to have eunuchs because they couldn't do any of the domestic chores. Because there's also this thing where, um, you know, in the Forbidden City, the royal palace, they weren't supposed to have intact males other than the emperor inside the gates of the Forbidden City after dark. Well, female maids can't handle all the domestic tasks 
the need to happen. And so it was kind of they found themselves as they settled down into kind of more traditional Han Chinese sort of way of living instead of the more kind of nomadic lifestyle they'd had before. They found they just couldn't do without eunuchs. And so they kind of they were like, OK, no eunuchs. And they're like, OK, no more than 3000 eunuchs. And then it was like, no more than 5000 eunuchs. And then it was just kind of like, all right, yeah, no more than X. But, you know, that number was always kind of being exceeded. So, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, it's as soon as you kind of get into using, you have that role and that needs to be filled. Yeah, you can't really get away from having eunuchs within the imperial structure. It's the same thing with the Ottoman Empire and a lot of the Persian empires as well. It's just kind of one of those, basically, as soon as you have that, that kind of group of people filling that role, you still need someone to fill that role. And this is kind of the most obvious sort of a group of people because it's like the, oh they've always been there they've always done this role this is a role for them that's awesome i also this is going to be random as very random um there's we made a joke earlier in one of our episodes and we'd say like the term way Xian, which is like it's just a, a joke from history hyenas you know it's like this way deep deep lying thing um but he was actually this guy way Xian was like a, a a eunuch in the part of that late kind of Ming dynasty who had all this power and was kind of known for that kind of stuff. So as I think someone messaged us the other day and asked us what, what that, what term we were saying, we were actually referring to this guy who was kind of wild and did this kind of crazy stuff in the late Ming dynasty. So just as a, as a heads up to our our listeners. (laughs) As, as a full circle to explaining something we pulled off another podcast, they not necessarily, they did not necessarily explain themselves. This, this, this topic is so fascinating for a number of reasons. Cause like one is, as Connor has said, like castration, I think in the American sense is really seen as a punishment, right? Like this is predominantly done in our history towards undesirables, you know, maybe enslaved people that got a little too, excited about freedom or or other particularly minority groups but to, but to hear you talk about how in some of these societies it, it was a special class of population where, where they had this and that you can see this skeletally right so as you talked about how in mammals in general if they're castrated early enough like you know prepubescent that they have different growths in their long bones. And you said that just as my castrated, well, he's not castrated. He had his, his little tubes cut. I guess my, my, my partner's male cat was strutting in here. And I was like kind of staring at him pretty intently for a little bit. I'm like, do you have, do you have some long, is that why you have some long limbs? So are you able to see this archeologically? Um, yes. Yeah. So unfortunately, even, and this is, you know, as, as I said, I kind of, I went to Oxford because I wasn't getting a lot of people kind of writing, especially when you write about castration, because which, I mean, yeah, as you say, it's, there's this special role for castrates, but we have historically always not wanted to be associated with it. Because, yeah, it is seen as kind of this, especially for intact males, who are most of the people who've been writing history. It's a thing that, you know, it's again, that castration anxiety is real. <laughs> and especially when you live in a society where this is practiced and it is practiced as a punishment. Because So, yeah, that's one of the things is a lot of these societies where castra- they use castrates. Castrate was also castration was also a punishment. Yeah, it, it is kind of one of those things where there's a lot of anxiety behind it. You've got mostly intact males writing the histories. And so you get this kind of push pull as to like, 
we need them, but we don't like having them. And we don't want to be associated with like us being the ones to make them. So it's always, you know, like in the Roman Empire, it's it has to come from outside the, the borders of the empire. You can't be castrating people inside the empire unless it's for punishment, that kind of thing. But yeah, you can actually see it in long bones. And it's unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of skeletons for my thesis, which is kind of why I branched out more into animals and kind of just broadly in mammals for my thesis is yes. Yeah. If you castrate prepubertally and it's basically, it's dependent on the hormones. We know about estrogen we know about testosterone, both males and females kind of, if we look at, if we think of sex as a spectrum and we've got kind of females at one end, males at the other end, females tend to have more estrogen. Males tend to have more testosterone, but what actually happens is the, the androgens, the male sex hormones, everybody has kind of a little bit of both, at least, at least a little bit of both. And androgens actually turn into estrogens and you need estrogens to both tell your bones to start growing when you're, when you're a kid, you also need it to tell your bones to stop growing. So it's kind of one of these things where castrates, when they have the, when the testicles are removed or otherwise destroyed or the destroyed sounds so much worse. When you say destroyed, that really makes me cringe. (laughs) Well, yeah, this is, there were a couple of times reading, doing the reading for my thesis where it was not great because the main, main way of getting rid of testicles is to just cut them off. But there were also methods where you could crush them or, you know, they're like like they do sometimes with modern animals. They kind of put a band around the base of them and just kind of they essentially atrophy and fall off. Yeah, there are lots of different kind of terrible ways of of castrating male mammals. Yeah, it's, it's not very pleasant reading sometimes. But basically, if the testicles are no longer there... Uh, they can't create that ex- estrogen to send that signal to the bones to stop growing. So I looked at a uh, castrate. He was from, I believe, somewhere along the Nile. And he'd basically been caught, um, enslaved, brought up the Nile, castrated, and he wound up in a household in Egypt. And he then, I think, caught something, a cold, an infection, something, and passed away at about somewhere between 22 and 26. His age is a little unclear. But basically, his remains were then taken to the morgue in Cairo, where this French doctor was visiting. He was friends with the um, head of the morgue in Cairo and watched the autopsy. And then I don't know how, probably through some extremely dodgy and unethical practices, brought the remains of this individual back to France with him. So these remains are actually in the anatomy museum in Lyon. And so I went to study these remains for my thesis. And yeah, this individual died when he was 26 and he's still got completely open epiphyses. So kind of as your bones are growing, you've got like the end, the end bits, which are the epiphyses. And then you've got the diaphysis. So like of an arm bone, you'd have like an epiphysis up here an epiphysis down here. And then you've got kind of the shaft. And normally by the time you're in your mid twenties, you'd expect these epiphyses to be fully fused to the rest of the bone. His were completely open. So that's unusual. It potentially could happen if someone was malnourished, a couple of other things, but kind of even more than that, a paper that was published in the kind of early 2010s by Belcastro and colleagues, they had exhumed a very famous castrato named Farinelli. And he was, he was basically kind of like the Jonas brothers of the operatic age, the 1700s. He was like the Michael Jackson, the the big superstar kind of singer of the time. And he, so he was wealthy. He had all these fans 
And he basically was wealthy enough that he could set aside a tomb for himself. So he was buried and he'd been exhumed a couple of times, moved around. He'd been buried with a great niece, that kind of thing. And in 2009 or so, he was exhumed because the cemetery was, I believe, being built over. So he was exhumed from the cemetery. And so the team was studying his remains and they were looking at him. He died when he was 76 and he still had open epiphyses, which is completely unheard of. Like you uh, basically there's something there's something completely different going on with this skeleton. And so, yeah, it's, you know, his long bone epiphyses are completely open. So because the epiphyses never get that signal to fuse to the bones, your bones just keep getting longer and longer and longer because they're growing out towards these epiphyses. And they're never told to stop. So, yeah, you get this kind of very long, in some cases, very kind of narrow um, sort of body shape. Not quite Slenderman, but. Oh, my God. I was just about of, to say Slenderman. This castration yeah. creates Slenderman. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of it, you look at some photos of castrates from the early 1900s and you're like, OK, yeah, no, that seeing that person coming at you in a dark alleyway or a dark forest somewhere, if you knew about Slenderman, you would kind of be like, oh, but so yeah, so like all of the kind of the the long bones get very long. And then the other thing I found was that basically, again, you need testosterone and at least a little bit of estrogen to kind of make the mid face, the kind of area here between your eyes and your mouth get taller. If you don't have that, that kind of stays small. So your face, the castrati, uh, castrates in general are always described as having very childlike faces. And that's part of it. Partly also, you don't get the same level of wrinkling to your skin, but also like just because your face doesn't get as tall, it looks more childlike. And then you also get the pelvis. It doesn't look quite correct. So you've got kind of like the bits where you put your hands on are the iliac crest and that kind of angles out in castrates. So like the the kind of the lower bit where your pubic bone and your... Um, uh, sit upon bones, your ischia are, that looks kind of the same as anybody else, but the kind of the, the more upper flared part of a pelvis, they kind of like lay out a little bit, which kind of contributes to castrates get described as having kind of very feminine looking hips. And that's partly due to fat deposition and partly due to the, I think the fact that their, their pelvis kind of splay out a little bit in this kind of weird way. So yeah, you can look at a skeleton and you can be like, okay, yes, that looks weird because like, yeah, this is I went into the the anatomy museum and they just have this skeleton kind of hanging in the anatomy museum and walking up. You look at it and you're like, there's something not right with that skeleton. But the weird thing is when he was laid down for me to be able to to examine him, that kind of disappeared. And so you kind of other other than the fact that the, the fingers and the toes were a little long, a little spidery looking, most of that kind of disproportion disappeared. And I think that's part of why we're not finding castrates archaeologically is because, of course, when you exhume a skeleton, they're laying down. When you examine them, they're laying down. You don't get this kind of idea of that kind of long, strange proportion. Unless you're doing statistical analyses, you wouldn't get that kind of disproportion that comes out. So we did do some some statistics and you can actually statistically detect castrates within a a population if you're kind of living it uh, keeping it at three extremes male female and castrate very 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 cool yeah thank i've never been uh, i've never never been this uncomfortable like it's not like it's just like (laughs) this is a this is a hard topic for for gentlemen in in particular and just listening to you talk about this like i i yeah i could see the connor on this like this was 
Yeah, and this has been this is uh, episode eighty four. We will catch you after you hear Chris Webster's beautiful, beautiful voice. And he's not castrated. Welcome back to episode eighty four of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Catherine Roish, and I think I have introduced and or walked out every segment of this, so I apologize to Carlton. But recently, I was listening to uh, a Radio Lab piece, and we will li- we will drop that in the, the the show notes where they're talking about kind of modern castration and who it affects and things like that. So could you give us kind of a a short description of what modern castration looks like today? Yep, definitely. And yeah, it's kind of the first thing is that we do still have castration today. It's not a dead practice. It's something we're still doing actively. In some cases, it's more chemical castration for sex offenders. And that's basically blockers to block hormones. The idea is that it's supposed to prevent aggression, sexual feelings, and in some cases, erections. How well that works is kind of debated still within the medical and medical legal fields. But the idea is that it's a more humane form of castration because it's reversible. So, you know, if you stop taking the drugs, you can go back to fairly normal sexual function. So that happens for, you know, sexual predators, those kinds of things. If they're looking for a shorter sentence, they might trade off and say, yes, I'm willing to undergo chemical castration. The other thing it gets used for quite frequently these days is prostate cancer because prostate cancer is fed by testosterone. Sometimes if you have a very aggressive form or a form that's not responding well to other kinds of treatments, you will be given chemical castration, essentially, again, those same blockers to kind of prevent the androgens, especially the testosterone, from kind of really aggravating and feeding the cancer. Um, so that's kind of two major forms. And then there are also, yeah, there's there's still physical sterilizations happening of people today. And this kind of stems from... I'm blanking on exactly the date, but it's basically Bell versus Buck. And it was an early um, 1900s rule, basically. It's talked all about in the book Imbeciles, which I'm blanking on the author at the moment. It goes into this case where it's this idea that undesirable to who is, again, who's in power at the time, but people who are undesirable to the people in power will be or can be legally sterilized. And that's still U.S. law. If you are within the U.S. and you are deemed essentially an imbecile, that's the the actual legal term used, you can be sterilized against your will. And this is a law that's used for a lot of different things. It's used, yes, for people with, in some cases, developmental disabilities. It's part of what's being used to justify sterilizations of women coming north from Central America, Central and South America on the southern border. Those sterilizations we heard about a month or two ago, it's the same law that's being used to to, um, justify those. And so, yeah, it's sterilization, castration is still being practiced today in a, a number of different ways, a number of different places. There's also the fact that a lot of trans individuals, if you wish to be recognized legally on your identification as the sex that matches your gender identity, frequently, especially here in the U.S., you have to be sterilized. And so it's still being practiced in a lot of same ways that it has been practiced in the past. And in in some cases, some very discriminatory ways. Absolutely. And I will go ahead. And Chris, you don't have to believe this. That's pretty fucked up. Lay that down. I know part of that deviancy that you touched upon, like within the within the modern era, that includes homosexuals. And that's happened to individuals that many 
had a very prominent roles in history. Like in the green room, we talked about, you know, the guy in the UK that cracked the Enigma code, the German Enigma code. And we were able to read all of the German message, Nazi German messages throughout World War II was a homosexual. And then once that he got found out, they made him go through that chemical castration. And especially when it kind of talked about sterilization, right? Like American Indian communities, especially can attest to this right in the 1970s maybe our listeners aren't aware but the u.s and some doctors sterilized indigenous women without their knowledge and to hear that that's going on today in 2021 to migrants fleeing into the united states from their countries who are in economic and political turmoil primarily because of american and cia involvement is highly disturbing and like Castration for many of our audience is something that we think of as, as, as explicitly a past practice and something that we've learned throughout this entire show and, a, and an entire theme that we've had with all of our guests is how is archaeology and anthropology relevant to today and like your research on castration, which kind of shows how that affects you biologically. And we've talked about the anthropology of how they've interacted societally like that matters today, that modern people, that there are people that are going through this process either willing or unwillingly, or it's being forced upon them. You know, like, as you mentioned, people are being with people that are, are trying to become the identity that they associate with that that's being forced upon them. Right. Like we talk about the Ming dynasty. I mean, do you volunteer to be a castrate? Who knows? But like that, the, the, the dualities where you can see a lot of this interplay is just with this conversation night. It's just, so eye-opening is like all I can say. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. It's like, holy, holy crap. This is still going on today. Yeah. And it's it's one of those challenging things of studying this field is, yeah, it's because, it, it, yeah, people are like, oh, well, how can that be relevant? And it's like it is. It's actually deeply relevant today um, in ways that I really wish it wasn't. In As you say, in the year 2021, I really wish that it was not relevant in the ways that it is. But yeah, it is this kind of deep duality and it's it's kind of interwoven into castration. And I think it probably comes from that original seed of if castration is related to human castration is related to animal management practices. It starts 10, 12,000 years ago. If you view people as animals, if you view people, you know, you have slaves, you view people as less than you. It's a very, very easy step to go from, okay, we're doing our animal herd management practices. Now we're going to do that same herd herd management practice on the people we've got. And it's kind of that probably that original seed of human castration is related to that viewing of other human beings as not human, as inhuman. And it's kind of, it's that same problem we see here in 2021 is, you don't view them as human and therefore you're justified in doing whatever you want to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a form of, yeah, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a population control mechanism and you can really control and, and, and put down folks that you don't want that are not desirable as part of your population. And that's a very eugenics thing. And that's the history of anthropology. You know, all this stuff is really related to our discipline and kind of, our big, the trajectory of humans in this world, a lot of that is related. So it's, 
It's crazy. Like, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Like it's, it's been eye opening and, and, and really fantastic to, to have you, to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. Love talking about it. So yeah, it's been a great opportunity. Thank you. Excellent. I know our, our listeners might be confused, but yeah, we, we ran a little long for the segment, second segment, which we're totally happy about. So just we do have to cut this one a little bit short. Catherine, like echoing Connor, it's been fascinating having you on. been thinking about it since we had that lunch and you're like, this is what my research is about. And I was like... Okay. So, but before we end the show, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos, blogs, whatever that you would recommend for anyone interested in bioanthropology, paleopathology, or castration? Definitely. So if anyone's interested in kind of learning more about the human skeleton, anything like that, kind of kind of beginning human osteology, the Human Bone Manual by Tim White and Peter Falkins is great for that. It's a great introductory manual. It's got a lot of kind of the really basic information for beginning bioarchaeology. Inside it, it's got life-size images of human bones. So you can kind of, um, from all the kind of different angles, you can view a bone. So it's actually a really great field resource as well. And it's you'll find full professional bioarchaeologists taking it into the field as a reference guide. So it's a wonderful book. For paleopathology specifically, which is the study of disease in past populations, I really like The Archaeology of Disease by Charlotte Roberts and Keith Manchester. It's a really great intro to paleopathology as kind of a discipline looking at, um, okay, we've got, we, we understand what the skeleton is. We understand what, what it should look like. Now we've got this skeleton that looks very different. How do we kind of determine what's going on? And so it's actually used as a textbook pretty frequently. In fact, it was one of the textbooks for my master's program. And then uh, for castration, if you're interested in it, I really do want to say my thesis. It's not published, but you can actually find it on Oxford's repository webpage. You have to deposit a digital copy of your thesis. So I do have a copy of that. But if you have a kind of a more general interest, um, just kind of learning about the history of castration, Piotr Schultz has got a book called Eunuchs and Castrati, A Cultural History, which is a really great kind of general history it was published in 2001, so it's a little bit out of date. If you like something a little bit more up to date, Sean Tuffer has the Eunuch and Byzantine History and Society, which has got a really great section. There are a couple chapters that are really good history of castration kind of across the globe. And as far as I know, that's available. All, both of those are available from most libraries, certainly here in the Front Range region. You can get them from the library. And I only say that because Sean Tuffer's book is a little bit expensive for if you've just kind of got a passing interest. And then, yeah, if you're interested in more about Buck versus Bell, Imbeciles, which, again, I'm blanking on the author, is a really great kind of segue there. Yeah, that's and that's Paul Lombardo. I only I looked it up now. I googled it, so that that was the reason. Um, and, uh, yes. and that will be in the the, the show notes and a, a link to that. Um, also, a link to the Radio Lab piece, which I think is based on that. So, and where can our listeners find you on social media? I have a Twitter, uh, which is at K L Roish, and that's R E U S C H. And then you can also find me on the DMNS staff webpage under basically our, our anthropology staff, I'm on there. <laughs> and that's probably the, the best place to kind of catch up with what we're doing in the conservation lab at the museum. Awesome. And because this is uh, a life in ruins, we have to ask you a very cheesy question. So if you were given the opportunity, would you choose to study 
a very sensitive subject about the folks who lived in ruins. Would you would you do it all again? Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we like to hear. So everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Catherine Royce, uh, conservation technician in the Museum Conservation Department at Denver Museum of Nature and Science and affiliate faculty of sociology and anthropology at the Metro State University of Denver. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Royce. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about um, what got you inspired to be be an archaeologist as well as your research for everyone listening please 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 be sure to rate the podcast and provide us with any feedback on whichever podcasting platform you are using to listening to our show it's very important that you let us know how we're doing you can email us if you have uh, topics you'd like us to cover or guests that you'd like us to interview and if you are listening on the all shows feed on the archaeology podcast network please 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 find our podcast subscribe and follow us and 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 listen to our podcast off of the all shows feed it really helps with our metrics and how well we're doing we just don't have access to to you guys listening on the all shows feed so please if you could do that for us come find our show a life in ruins podcast we'd be very grateful and with that we are out Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So what's the difference between a man with a vasectomy and a eunuch? A vast difference. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard it. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> oh my God, that makes me so happy. And with that, everyone, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States. Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.